Thank you for stopping by the Cypress Church Podcast. We are a church community who seek to worship Jesus, love one another, and serve the world. We hope you'll come away from this podcast with your hearts refreshed from hearing the Word of God proclaimed. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Those are the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Dietrich was a brilliant young German man who lived during the rise of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime in Germany during the 1930s. In 1935, Dietrich began an underground seminary, an illegal seminary. According to the Nazis, he was training young pastors to proclaim the gospel in Nazi Germany. In 1937, he published his now famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, from which that quote came, and that put him on the Gestapo watch list. After that, he moved to the United States briefly to escape the craziness of what was going on in his country, but he never felt settled here. He felt like he was running away from the pot problem and not being part of the solution, so he went back. There was one last ship that was sailing from the United States across the Atlantic to get to Germany, and he took it, going right into the teeth, the sharp teeth of the line that was the Nazi regime. In 1943, he was arrested by the Gestapo at his home, carted away in a black Mercedes taken to a concentration camp, and he went from one concentration camp to the next concentration camp until 1945, April 1945, months before World War II was ended. In April 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed in the Nazi concentration camp by hanging. The words I quoted to you earlier were the English translation of Dietrich's original German words. In German, they're way less poetic. They're a lot rougher and raw. You'll see them up on the screen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote before his arrest, before his execution, he wrote, every call of Christ is a call to death. And I want to suggest to you this morning that Dietrich Bonhoeffer didn't die on that day in 1945 in that Nazi concentration camp. He died a long time before that. He died before he got on that ship, before he printed that, published that book, The Cost of Discipleship, before he started that illegal seminary. Dietrich Bonhoeffer died the day he decided to start following Jesus. And this morning, as we go through Acts chapter 7, we're going to be challenged to acknowledge that to ourselves. So if you have a Bible, if you would open up to Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 7 is on page 1163 of the black Bibles in front of you, page 1163, Acts chapter 7. Last week in Acts chapter 6, we were introduced to Stephen. We made the point that Stephen 
wasn't an apostle, but because he had been discipled, through discipleship, he was doing all the things that the apostles were doing, the things that the apostles were doing and that Jesus did before the apostles. Stephen was speaking the name of Jesus with boldness. He was serving others and was given the supernatural ability to do signs and wonders, confirming not only that his service was with love, but the gospel was true. Stephen was doing just what the apostles were doing, just what Jesus had been doing. Stephen was not an apostle. He was like us. And just like the apostles, as Stephen was ministering, he was arrested. And he was falsely accused. And now, so now we go from Acts chapter 6, which happened to be the shortest chapter in the book of Acts, and now we come to Acts chapter 7, the longest chapter in the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 7, all of the action revolves around a sermon that Stephen proclaimed to all of the Jewish religious leaders and his subsequent stoning. So, because this chapter is the longest chapter, I've enlisted some help. I've enlisted the help of my friend, Ray. She is going to come out and read with me. I'm going to read the parts that aren't Stephen, and she is going to read the words of Stephen. So, how are we doing? Okay. Matt's a lot taller than you, isn't he? That's very good. All right. Very good. Yeah, you never know where Matt Masaryk's been. <laughs> that should be a good practice anytime. All right, you good? Okay. Acts chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land into which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. 
And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt truly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He is supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. 
So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when Stephen heard these things, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at his right hand. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Thank you very much, Ray. Can you guys give her a thank you hand clap? Thank you. So I want to offer you three insights into Stephen's death this morning. There's three insights that bring this whole chapter together. There is a lot of words, eight minutes of words. This is an entire history of the people of Israel. It's quite an amazing speech if you just took it for what it was. But it's an incredible theological treatise too. So we're going to look at three insights into Stephen's death. The first is this, number one, Stephen died because of a sermon. Stephen died because of a sermon. Stephen was being interrogated before the full council of the Jewish religious leaders. He was being interrogated, false accusations had been brought against him, but instead of offering a defense for himself, Stephen went on the offense and proclaimed the gospel about Jesus. He wasn't thinking of himself. He was only thinking about Jesus. And as we think through that, we start looking through this sermon, and it is a long history of God's people in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, beginning with Abraham. Now, if you're reading through this as I was the first time, You're reading through this and it's a long string of of history all being linked together. And you might be asking yourself, why is he saying all this while he's being interrogated? What is the point of all this? The key to this entire sermon is found in verse 51. Look in verse 51 with me. Stephen says 
to this whole council of religious leaders, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. That phrase, those sentences, are the key to the whole sermon. If you can concentrate on that, you'll start seeing how all of this information is being linked together and becomes a call of Christ upon this whole religious leadership council. So, how does that phrase unlock this passage? You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. That is the thread that ties this all together, and that reference to your fathers is key. As you run through this sermon, as you run through this sermon, underline how many times the word fathers, father, and patriarchs come up. You'll find it 22 times. That is a lot. So Stephen is tracing this history of the Jewish fathers. Ten specific Jewish founding fathers are named. You'll see the names of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, Joseph, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, David, and Solomon. These are all huge, heavy hitters. And so as he's speaking about this long history of our fathers and punctuating it with these key founding fathers' names, everything starts coming together. Now, if you look to the screen, you're going to see a summary of this thread of resistance through the sermon. It begins with Abraham. In verse 4, God told Abraham to go to the land that he would show, the promised land. Instead, in verse 4, it says that Abraham went to Haran until his father died. And it says that God had to remove him from Haran to go to the promised land. So the resistance begins with Abraham. That would have been a massive shock to these Jewish religious leaders who held Abraham in the much, the, in high esteem. It continues with our fathers. Our fathers, it says, sold Joseph out of jealousy into slavery in verse 9. It continues with Moses. Moses' resistance. Moses murdered an Egyptian man. We see that in verse 24. Our fathers continue to resist the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 39, our fathers refused to obey Moses out in the desert. They thrust him aside, it says. And then David. David, to all accounts, is a man after God's own heart. It actually says that. But David insisted on building God a house. Even though God had said, hey, I can't be contained in a building. David insisted on making a temple, a house for God. And Solomon, his son, ended up making that, that house. But you see the insistence and of, of David in verse 49. So we have this long history of resistance so that when we get to verse 51 and Stephen says... You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, because he's just given us this long history all the way from Abraham down through all of the fathers, 
of resisting the Holy Spirit. And now he turns, and the pivot point is verse 51. And he says, it's been our fathers all the way through. And then he turns and says, but your fathers, your fathers have resisted. And just as your fathers have always resisted, so do you. What happens there in verse 51? What happens is Jesus. Jesus showed up. And up until now, Stephen has identified himself with the people of God in in the Old Testament. They have been his fathers as well. But then Jesus came. And the resistance to the Holy Spirit in Stephen's life stops. And he receives, not resists, he receives Jesus as God's resurrected king and stops resisting the Holy Spirit. So even though he's been identified with God's chosen people all down through history, that identification with them and their resistance and rejection of all the prophets, beginning with Moses and David and all the way down, that resistance is now stopped in Stephen's life. He has received Jesus as his king. So that's why the shift goes from our fathers to your fathers, because now Stephen's resistance has shut down and he has received Christ as the king, God's resurrected king. Obviously, this kind of direct confrontation in the, in the pivot point of this sermon enraged the Jewish religious leaders. They had everything they needed to kill him at this point. Stephen no longer identified himself with the long history of resistance. Now he's received Christ, the righteous one, but he turns to them and says, but you betrayed the righteous one. Verse 52, you murdered him. And so you continue this long history of resistance to the Holy Spirit because you refuse to receive Christ as God's king. They're enraged. They start gnashing their teeth. Man, that is mad. They're gnashing their teeth, and it says they stoned him to death. They literally picked up heavy stones and threw them at him, which was an ancient form of capital punishment in the Old Testament. They stoned him to death. Stephen died because he preached a sermon. That brings us to the second insight. The second insight is this. Stephen was the first to die after Christ. Stephen was the first to die after Christ. Now, if you had asked me, if if all I knew was Acts chapter 1 through 6 and I didn't know all, all the rest of the story, if you'd asked me, who do you think is the most likely to die first after Jesus? I wouldn't have said Stephen. I would have said well, most likely one of the 12 apostles. They've been getting into all sorts of trouble. And more than likely, it's Peter and John. They've been arrested more than any of them. But Stephen, again, he wasn't an apostle. He was like us. I think that's significant. It's not only the apostles who are supposed to die for Christ. It's everybody. All the followers of Jesus need to be willing to die for Jesus. And so not only note, not only note that Jesus, uh, Stephen, who's like us, was the first to die after Jesus, that's significant. The first of anything in the Bible is always significant. 
So not only does Stephen die, and he is like us, but notice how like Jesus' death, Stephen's death is. Stephen was accused of the same things that Jesus was accused of. He was brought before the same religious leaders that Jesus was brought before. He was dragged outside the city of Jerusalem just like Jesus was dragged. And he said the same things that Jesus said right before he died. If you look at verse 59 and verse 60, Stephen says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That's just like Jesus' words in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. And then in verse 60 in Acts chapter 7, and falling to his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That is almost verbatim what Jesus says in Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. In so many ways, there are striking parallels between Jesus' death and Stephen's death. Same accusations, same leaders, same city, same dragging outside the city, same words. It's the same. And the whole point, I think, is to get us to think deeply about how Stephen died and who Stephen is. The whole point is for us not only to think about Stephen's death, but think about what Jesus said about this Christian life. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, starts ringing in my ears. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. If you really think through that, that is a call to death. To take up your cross daily. You see, one of the, the points of this passage, I think, in making these parallels, Jesus, uh, Stephen was the first to die after Jesus, and he's not an apostle, and his death was remarkably similar to Jesus, which is striking, is to get us to realize Stephen might have died in Acts chapter 7, but he died a long time before this. He died before he was appointed to serve tables in Acts chapter 6, he died before that. He died before he was indwelt with the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Stephen died the day that he decided to begin following Jesus by faith. Jesus made it very abundantly clear. He didn't hide these calls to death. He said to the whole crowd who was listening to him, not just to his 12 disciples, he said to the whole crowd, Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Now, as you think about that call to death, realize it is. That's exactly what it is. Crucifixion in those days was so clearly a call to death that no one would have even questioned it. When Jesus started talking like this, it says in the scriptures that many people stopped following him. You're calling us to die? I'm out. 
I don't want any part of that. I want to live. But this is where the paradox of the gospel come, begins coming in. To truly live, we have to die. We have to die to ourselves. We have to die to sin. We have to die to all the things of this world. So Stephen didn't die in Acts chapter 7. He did. But he died a long time before that. He died to himself when he decided to begin following Jesus. And then every day after that, as he practiced denying himself, taking up his cross and following Jesus, he was just enacting this death every day. And every day as he died to himself, he would become alive in Christ. If you ask yourself, could I ever stand in front of a massive amount of people and declare without any shame the gospel of Jesus like Stephen did? Yes, you can. Yes, you could. Because it's just a further iteration of a daily walk that you've been doing your whole life in Christ. If you learn to die to yourself every day and live for Christ, you're ready to do whatever it takes to follow Jesus. That's why we say things like, are you willing to follow Jesus no matter what the cost, without conditions, without excuses for the rest of your life? That is a massive call to death. You have to die to yourself before you can live for Christ. I want you to write these words down. They're not, not going to come up on the screen, but I want you to write them down because I believe that they're true and we need to think about them. We will not experience the fullness of Jesus' resurrection life until we have completely died to ourselves. We will not experience the fullness of Jesus' resurrection life until we have completely died to ourselves. Think about that this week. If you want to experience all the love, all the joy, all the patience, all the hope, all the goodness, all the life of Jesus, first you must die to yourself completely before you experience all of that fully. This is the call to the Christian life. Before it's a call to life and the fullness of it, it is first a call to death. And Stephen's been practicing this every day he's been following Jesus. So when Jesus calls him to proclaim the gospel to this, before this whole council, Stephen just does it because he's reg he knows how to do it. He's been doing it every day he's been following Jesus. Some days better than others, but he's experienced the forgiveness of God enough and the reinstitution re and the reestablishing of God enough, speaking love over him, that he's not afraid to stand up in front of these 70 men who have the power to take his life. Stephen was the first to die after Christ. The Christian life is, before anything else, a call to death. Just like Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it was, every call of, of Christ is a call first to death. Think about that this week. There's so many people across our country who think that they're experiencing the fullness of life and they're experiencing this much because that's how much they're willing to die to themselves. 
And Christ is calling us to completely die to ourselves. And they go, well, the Christian life isn't all that powerful because I'm only experiencing this much. And I would say, that's because you're only sacrificing that much of your own self. You've still got this much to go. If your Christian life is lame, that's not Jesus' fault. It's because you're only willing to give up this much of yourself. You're only willing to give up that much of yourself to sin and the things of this world. Oh no, we don't want to give up the things of this world. We want all the things of this world. We want to, to experience all the, the pleasure of sin. We, we don't want to give up ourselves. Well, guess what? It's directly correlating to the fullness of experiencing Christ's life. If you only give up this much of yourself, you're, you're not going to experience any more than that. If you surrender your whole life to Jesus, you will experience it all and you won't know what hits you. It will be the most joyful, spirit-filled, hope-filled life ever. It will be power. It will be presence. <laughs> Stephen has laid it all on the line. Not just here. He died a long time ago. This was just the fulfilled. This wasn't even a death for him. This was a transition to eternal life. He was already living in the fullness of Jesus' life. And this isn't, might look like to the world, this is dying. He's not dying. He's transitioning into the presence of Jesus. If you look at the end of this chapter, is Stephen bummed out that he's dying? Not at all. Sorry, my voice is cracked. That hasn't happened since I was 13. <laughs> Is Stephen bummed out? Not at all. Look at, look at this. In verse 55, it says, as he's being stoned, it says, Stephen was full of the Spirit and he saw the glory of God and he beheld this magnificent vision of Christ. And in verse 59 and 60, he's already begun talking to Jesus. Is Stephen bummed out? He's stoked out of his mind. He's entering into the very presence of God. Something his heart's been longing for his whole life on this earth is now coming to pass. He's being stoned. He's feeling the pain, but is nothing compared to the glory that he's seeing that he's entering into at this moment. Man, that is hope. That is a heart fully surrendered to God. And if you're only going to give up this much, you're only going to experience the presence and power of God to the same extent that you're willing to die to yourself, die to sin, die to the things of this world. Are you ready to put it all on the line for Jesus and really crucify yourself every day Die to yourself every day. Deny yourself every day. Take up your cross every day. Because that's the call of Christ upon our lives as his followers. Every call of Christ is a call to death before it is anything else. That brings us to the third insight in this 
chapter, Acts chapter 7. The third insight into Stephen's death is we can resist the Holy Spirit too. We're saying that the the book of Acts is all about the Holy Spirit. It's about learning to experience the Holy Spirit more. Here is a new lesson for us about the Holy Spirit. You and me, we can reject, we can resist the Holy Spirit. We can resist the Holy Spirit's work in our life. We can say, nope, not going to do it. And that sets up a massive conundrum in my mind. The Holy Spirit empowered the creation of the heavens and the earth in the beginning. The Holy Spirit resurrected Jesus from the dead. That is power. And I can resist the Holy Spirit. Does that mean I'm more powerful than the Holy Spirit? No, it just means I'm really stubborn and my heart has been hardened by sin. That's what that means. It means the Holy Spirit is not going to force himself down anyone's throat. If you want to resist him, you may. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul, who by the way, in Acts chapter 7, we're introduced to the Apostle Paul. He was then known as Saul. It is amazing how many things that Stephen says in Acts chapter 7 that the Apostle Paul, he picks up exactly the same language that Stephen uses in this sermon. The Apostle Paul is amazingly indented by this sermon, we come to find out as he begins writing the rest of the New Testament. But at this point, Paul is, Saul is actually the one who is giving approval to and giving a thumbs up to Stephen Stoning. He is violently opposed to Stephen. And the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, he picks up this whole theme of Stephen now that he's an apostle. And he says, do not quench the spirit. It's the same language as you resist the Holy Spirit. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Paul says, do not quench the spirit. And in that verse and in others like it, the Holy Spirit is envisioned as this fire And the Holy Spirit wants to light a flaming fire in our lives. But there are things that we can do that quench, that pour water on, that extinguish the fire of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And in the same way as there is ways that we can resist the Holy Spirit, we can also fan into flame the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. So up on the screen, you're going to see a table two ways that we can respond to the Holy Spirit. Number one, we can resist the Holy Spirit's work in our lives with fear. And that works its way out in a lot of subtle ways. Here in Acts chapter 7, the resistance to the Holy Spirit is epic. I mean, these these are the guys that crucified Christ. These are the guys that come along and now they're, they're stoning Stephen. Their resistance is epic. And yours might be too. But there's a lot of little subtle ways that we can quench the Holy Spirit, resist his work in our lives. On the left-hand side, you can resist in fear the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Can we go to that next slide? By delaying obedience. You know what God's calling you to do and you say, not yet. 
in our home growing up, our kids, slow obey is no obey. <laughs> you de- delay obedience, you are resisting the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Staying busy, man, this is, talk about a pandemic. People are so busy, they keep themselves so chocked busy. Their schedules have no room, not even five minutes to spend time with the Lord during the day. They keep themselves so busy because they're so afraid of what God actually might call them to do. They are so resistant to to God actually doing it in their life that they just stay busy. That's their coping mechanism. No room for God to work in my life because I'm scheduled out. Can't fit another thing on for Jesus because I've got my own life packed up with full of stuff. So staying busy is another way of resisting the Spirit's work in your life. Protecting yourself. Only thinking of yourself. Thinking so highly of yourself. Not being others focused. Only thinking of yourself. How can I protect me? How can I stay safe? How can I stay healthy? Forget about you. How can I stay safe? Avoiding certain people. Avoiding some people over others. Who did Jesus hang around with the most? Sinners and people he called the least of these. Did he hang around with lepers? He actually not only hung around with them, he touched them and he healed them. Prostitutes, drunkards, these are the people that Jesus was with. He didn't avoid anybody. But we can stand back and we can say, well, I'm not going to go there and I'm not going to serve those people and I'm not going to be near these people and those people can't be my friends because they're so different from me. We resist the Holy Spirit's work in our life when there's some people we won't go near. And we can limit the Holy Spirit. Man, this, I, I went to a school where they said the Holy Spirit doesn't do these certain things anymore. Really? Where does it say that here? Does it say that in the Bible? Or are you just super uncomfortable with the Holy Spirit and how he works? Be very careful what you say the Holy Spirit or what you think the Holy Spirit can and cannot do. If the, if the scriptures don't say that the Holy if the, if the scriptures say the Spirit doesn't do that, then the Spirit doesn't do that. But if the Holy Spirit's doing stuff in here and the scriptures don't say he's stopped doing that, be very careful about limiting the Holy Spirit because you be, might be resisting, quenching the Holy Spirit's work in your life. So, on the other hand, so we've got this resisting and fear the Holy Spirit. Then we've got surrendering by faith to the Holy Spirit. Obey immediately. You practice stillness, solitude, quietness. You get away during the day and you spend time with Jesus. How are you ever going to hear the voice of Jesus if you never have time to listen? So busy. You're listening to the news, you're listening to the radio, you're listening to music. How about stopping and being still before the Lord so you can hear his voice? Denying yourself, drawing near to all. And the last one is as he wills. That is a reference to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. That phrase is a powerful phrase to me because of the limiting the Holy Spirit idea. 
It's, it's, the Spirit does as He wills. Not what you think, not what I say. The Holy Spirit does as He wills. Who's in charge there? The Spirit. The Spirit does whatever He wants. He does as He wills. If He doesn't use you, He'll use somebody else. If He doesn't use this church, He'll use another church. I want Him to use you and me and this church to do as He wills, not as what we think or not what we say. We're not going to limit the Holy Spirit around here. So you think through the Holy Spirit and how he works. Understand that in Acts chapter 7, you can quench the Spirit. Don't, the Apostle Paul says. Understand that we, our history, we might not be part of the Jewish fathers, but our history going all the way back to Adam is a history of resisting God's work in our lives. Sin is powerful, but it is not more powerful than the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can enable you to deny yourself and die to sin's influence in your life so that you can follow fully what Christ has for you in your life. A plague broke out. In the third century Roman Empire, it started spreading all throughout the empire with, in a rapid clip. 5,000 people per day were dying. Five million people died in a very short period of time. And in the city of Alexandria, there was a pastor of a church. His name was Dionysus. And Dionysus, the bishop of Alexandria, had a congregation. And he was just stunned at his congregation's response to this plague in their city. The whole city who wasn't sick, they ran. They ran out of the city. They, read, they headed for the hills, quite literally, to get to the country, and they left their sick family members and those who were dying. They just left them. They bailed. They just were thinking of themselves. They just left. Dionysus his congregation, they stayed. They stayed and started serving the sick and those who were dying. And I want to read to you some of his words. <clears throat> Dionysus wrote these words, Many of our brothers and sisters showed unbounded love and loyalty, never thinking of themselves but only of others. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. While some were miraculously protected from contracting the sickness, many of them died in Jesus' name. But they departed this life serenely happy. That sounds a lot like what we see Stephen doing here in Acts chapter 7, doesn't it? Stephen enters the danger. He doesn't run. He stays and he enters the danger. And the Holy Spirit is actually leading him into these things. And it leads to his stoning. But for Stephen, his stoning and death is the entryway to a whole new glorious aspect of his eternal life. He's already experiencing the fullness of Jesus. He's already dying to himself so Christ can live in him. This is just opening up a whole new realm. Death for, for Stephen wasn't a big deal. It was the crowning jewel on the next stage of his life. That's why he could, he was, he, he surrendered it all 
brothers and sisters. He just laid it all on the line. And I look at what's going on in our world right now with this coronavirus, and I go, what would Jesus do in this circumstance? Would he actually go to those who are sick with the coronavirus and actually serve them and and tend to them, just like these believers did in the second century? I think he would. How do I know that? Because he did. He didn't stay away from the sick and the poor and the unhealthy and those who were inflicted with, with demons. He actually went to them. And it says he healed all of their diseases. Nothing can happen to you and me as a follower of Jesus. Nothing can happen to you or me that hasn't already passed through the hands of Jesus. I hope you really think about that. I hope it fills you with courage and hope and boldness and will cause you and me to surrender everything, not just this much, but all of it, our whole lives, everything we are, everything we have, all for Jesus. Because then we'll begin experiencing the resurrection power of Jesus. Then we'll start experiencing what we're reading about in the book of Acts. And just the fact that you're here today tells me you're these kind of people. You're already saying, hey, the world has gone crazy. This pandemic is really, really serious. I mean, people are dying from this sickness. But the panic is what is stunning to me. The panic is causing way more destruction at this point than the pandemic. And if there's, any time, if there's ever a time when the people of God need to be a stabilizing force, a hope-filled force, a force for the gospel of Jesus, he's the king. Everything's gonna be okay. We need to take our precautions. We need to be prudent. But our hope is ultimately not in not, us not getting sick or in the government's response to this epidemic and pandemic, or in in our healthcare professionals. We need to do what's prudent and take precautions, but ultimately, our hope must be in Christ. He's the one going in and touching the lame people. He's the one, and, and the sick people, and the lepers. He's the one who put these apostles on their track, and now they've influenced Stephen, and Stephen's willing to put it all on the line. That's why Stephen's so important because he's like us, he's not an apostle. Like we talked about last week, we can put the apostles on a pedestal, even though it says that they're just ordinary, uneducated men, we can put them on a pedestal, well, they're apostles, they're supposed to do that amazing stuff. Stephen's not an apostle. Stephen's the first to die for Christ. The message in all of that is, hey, if you're an apostle, you need to be willing to lay it all on the line, but if you're like Stephen, who's not an apostle, that means all the rest of us, you need to be willing to lay it all on the line too. Every call of Christ, whether it's to receive salvation, to overcome sin, to serve the sick, every call of Christ is a call to death and resurrection and resurrection and resurrection life and peace and hope and love and all of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. That is what is on the other side of death because it's not life and then death in the kingdom of God. It's death and then life. And that is our great hope. And that's why we can sing these things with such bravado is because that's our hope. So when the Holy Spirit moves, 
When the Holy Spirit moves, God's people are willing to completely die to themselves so that they can fully live for Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful for these brothers and sisters who are here, who have overcome fear and acted in faith by being here with one another. I pray that you would give up. We want, we, I pray that we wouldn't be a people who looks, is looked at as throwing caution to the wind, but that we'd be prudent and take precautions, but that we wouldn't stop loving people, that we wouldn't stop caring for people, that we wouldn't stop drawing near to God's people and, and calling out to you, Lord. So would you use God's words, or your words in Acts chapter 7, to minister to us this week, to help us not resist the Holy Spirit's work, but to empower us to surrender our whole lives to Jesus. We don't want to experience some of you, Lord. We want to experience all of you. So help us to surrender all of you this week by dying to ourselves daily so that we can live and experience the fullness of your life fully. We love you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your powerful, resurrected name we pray. In God's name we pray. Amen. Um, yeah, to experience full life with Christ, we do have to die to ourselves daily. And that's something I'd encourage you all this week to not just go through the motions, but intentionally think about that as you wake up each day. Uh, we're going to sing another song in a moment, but I just want to share some next steps. Um, how to strengthen your relationship with God and others here at Cyprus. The first is Easter is not too far away, and we're going to have multiple services that weekend. Um, Friday, April 10th is our Good Friday service at 6.30. And then on Easter Sunday, we're going to have two services, one at 9 a.m. and one at 11 a.m. We have invitations available in the lobby that for Good Friday and Easter Sunday, if you wanna take a few and pass them out. And then another simple step is just stay after the service. We're having coffee and snacks in the fellowship hall today um, and maybe talk to a few new people you've never met. Um, and also, if this is your first time at Cyprus, we'd ask you to fill out a connection card. It's located in the back of the pew in front of you and on the back side is a place for prayer requests and you can take those cards to the lobby after the service. Pastor Ben and the elders sent out an email yesterday explaining Cyprus's 10-day plan amidst the chaos of the coronavirus. The only on-campus ministries that will continue over the next 10 days are the Wednesday evening prayer meeting here in the sanctuary at 6.30 and Sunday service next Sunday at 10 a.m. All other on-campus ministries are postponed for the next 10 days, including Precept, Awana, and Youth Group. The elders are in communication and they have a meeting scheduled for Tuesday evening. If there's any updates, they will let us all know on Wednesday via our churchwide email. Finally, if you have an offering that you'd like to give, instead of passing the plate this morning, we have boxes located on the um, back wall when you exit the sanctuary, so you can just drop it in there when you leave, or you can also give online if you didn't know about that. Uh, will you also now just stand and join me in our final song?
May God create in you a clean heart, a transformed heart, a heart that knows and seeks and loves the justice and mercy of the Lord. May you accept the gift of salvation, not your personal possession to be coveted, but his work accomplished in the destruction of sin on the cross of Jesus Christ. And may you humble yourself before the Lord, coming before him with a broken spirit, a contrite heart, receiving from his hand great compassion and unfailing love. Go in peace, church, and stay safe. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more information about our community, please visit cypresschurch.org. And as always, we would love to see you every Sunday at 10 a.m. for worship. Have a blessed week. Thank you.